bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 1, 2011. This week, I'll start with a quick update on the status of the negotiations in Congress over federal funding levels for the remainder of this fiscal year. Then, I'll move to New Market Tax Credit News, where I'll review some of the details of the much-anticipated eighth round of New Market Tax Credit awards. In this week's Historic Tax Credit segment, I'll discuss state tax credit developments in Michigan, New Jersey, and Minnesota. Turning to low-income housing tax credit matters, I'll examine a recent article about tax reform that erroneously asserts that the burden of eliminating the low-income housing tax credit would fall most heavily on the finance and insurance industries. And finally, I'll share some good news for the renewable energy community in New Jersey, where the State Department of Revenue recently confirmed that Section 1603 grants are not taxable for state purposes. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we have a federal government funding update. As we've discussed in recent weeks, the current continuing resolution that's funding the federal government expires on March 4th, this Friday. Congress returned this week, but they have only a few days before the continuing resolution runs out. Most likely, lawmakers will pass a short-term extension, not an extension through September 30th, the fiscal year under the federal government, but a shorter-term extension with some budget cuts. At the time of this recording, lawmakers were stuck in a standoff over the spending cuts being proposed in these short-term budget plans. Even though they were in recess last week, House Republicans and Senate Democrats spent much of last week lobbying plans and criticisms back and forth. The most recent reported plan from House Republicans would extend funding for two weeks and include cuts of $4 billion. The measure would run through March 18th, when the next scheduled congressional recess is set to begin. If agreement is not reached on an extension by March 4th, then the federal government would shut down. The significance of the $4 billion in cuts that the Republicans have in their plan is when you extend it out $4 billion every two weeks through September 30th, you end up getting approximately $60 billion in overall cuts, which is the amount of cuts that they had in their budget plan that was approved a week and a half ago. For ongoing updates to the status of the continuing resolution, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter. In New Market Tax Credit News, as you know, last week, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund announced 99 community development entities had received allocations of New Market Tax Credits through the 2010 round of the New Market Tax Credit Program. The successful 99 CDEs represent nearly 40% of the total 250 applicants. Allocation awards in this round range in size from the low of $10 million to a high of $77 million. Both the average and the median allocation award amounts are about $35 million. 48 of the allocatees are not-for-profit organizations, and 18 of the allocatees are banks or publicly traded institutions. As most listeners know, new market tax credits may be used to finance a wide variety of activities. 
the CDFI fund says that approximately $1.7 billion of new market tax credit proceeds will likely be used to finance and support loans or investments in businesses in low-income communities. Similarly, approximately $1.8 billion of new market tax credit proceeds will likely be used to finance and support real estate projects in low-income communities. And about $28 million of new market tax credit proceeds will likely be used to provide capitalization for other CDEs. All 99 of the allocatees committed to providing at least 75% of their investments in areas that are characterized by either multiple indicia of distress or significantly greater indicia of distress than required by the New Market Task Order Program or high unemployment rates. In the eight rounds to date, the CDFI Fund has made 594 allocation awards totaling $29.5 billion in tax credit authority. As of January 1, 2011, more than $19.9 billion in qualified equity investments have been made into CDEs. This $19.9 billion represents more than 76% of the $26 billion in allocation authority that have been issued to CDEs through the end of calendar year 2010. Novogratz and Company is currently compiling additional data from the 2010 allocation round, and more detailed analysis and reactions from several of this round's successful applicants will be published in a special online sneak peek of the April issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. So stay tuned to www.novaco.com journal for more information. In state-level New Market Tax Credit news, Alaska Governor Sean Parnell is backing a bill that would enable the state's development corporation to provide loans and guarantees to cover funding gaps in Alaska projects using federal new markets tax credits. Governor Parnell says the proposal, which is outlined in HB 120 and SB 66, would enable the Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority to foster more economic development in the state's low-income areas. Under the legislation, the Development and Export Authority would evaluate the commercial reasonableness of a loan for a project and then guarantee the loan using funds from an enterprise development account. The proposal would also allow the Export Authority to service the loan using funds from the same account. The House bill was referred to the Finance Committee last week. At the time of this recording, no action had yet been taken on the Senate bill. You can find a copy of the legislation on www.newmarketscredits.com. Turning to a bold national initiative, the Opportunity Finance Network last week announced the launch of a new initiative in partnership with Goldman Sachs. Opportunity Finance Network is a network of private financial intermediaries. The Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business CDFI Growth Collaborative is a three-year initiative to build the capacity and to expand the reach of CDFI small business lenders. Up to 25 CDFI loan funds will be selected to be partners in this program. Those loan funds will have access to training, consulting, and peer learning opportunities that will help them better become more robust small business lenders. CDFI loan funds 
with a track record of providing small business loans of 50000 to 500000 or those that have a plan in place to offer these loans are eligible to apply. Opportunity Finance Network says that lessons from the initiative will be shared with the CDFI industry through conference sessions, conference calls, technical assistance memos, and a capstone paper that reviews the three-year experience. The application process is now open. However, applications will only be accepted through March 15th. For more information, go to www.opportunityfinance.net. In historic tax credit news, we have state tax credit updates from Michigan, New Jersey, and Mississippi. February shaped up to be a mixed bag for state historic tax credit programs. Many governors resolved bills from their state's 2010 legislative sessions and presented their fiscal year 2012 budget proposals. In Michigan, Governor Rick Snyder proposed cutting all, yes, all state tax credits from the budget, including the state's historic rehabilitation program. Other incentives on the chopping block include the Michigan Economic Growth Authority Program, as well as tax credits for brownfield redevelopment, alternative energy, film, and renaissance zones. Governor Snyder says that state tax incentives won't be necessary to attract and retain businesses after an overhaul of the state's tax system. Specifically, under the governor's executive budget for 2012 and 2013, the current business tax would be replaced with a flat 6% corporate tax. All of Michigan's tax credit programs would expire after the state has honored existing commitments. Any new economic development incentive would be awarded through the appropriations process and would also be subject to review. The Michigan Historic Preservation Network says the state's historic tax credit has leveraged nearly $1.5 billion in direct rehabilitation activity and produced 36,000 jobs. As such, the group is encouraging supporters of the historic preservation business tax credit to contact state and local officials to urge them to retain the credit. The budget is now in lawmakers' hands. Governor Snyder has requested that the legislature pass the budget bills by May 31st. In New Jersey, Governor Chris Christie raised the ire of Democratic lawmakers and historic preservation groups last week when he vetoed a package of 14 job creation bills, one of which would have established a state historic rehabilitation tax credit program. Assembly Bill 1851, the Historic Property Reinvestment Act, would have provided a tax credit worth 25% of historic rehabilitation costs. The measure received wide support in the Assembly, and it passed unanimously in the Senate. In a blanket press release explaining his vetoes of all 14 bills, the governor said that the measures did not identify a plan to pay for the incentives and that the proposed programs would have reduced revenues by $600 million in the first year. Governor Christie is the fifth governor to fail to pass a bill creating a historic tax credit in the state. This according to the New Jersey Heritage Development Coalition. We'll close this segment with some good news from Mississippi. Last month, lawmakers in Mississippi voted to extend the state's historic rehabilitation tax credit by two years. Mississippi offers a 25% tax credit that can be carried forward for 10 years. The credit's for the rehabilitation of historic structures used for residential or business purposes. The extension bill, House Bill 754, 
was signed into law by Governor Haley Barber in February, and it took effect immediately. The program is now slated to sunset on December 31, 2013. The text of the bill is available on www.historictaxcredits.com. I would like to also note that Novigrad and Company will be hosting a Historic Tax Credit Conference in Cleveland in April. Specifically, the dates are April 7th and 8th, Thursday and Friday in Cleveland, Ohio. For more information about the conference, go to www.novaco.com and click on the event section. I'll be there and I hope to see you there. Turning to low-income housing tax credit news, as I discussed in this podcast on February 8th, the nation's unprecedented budget deficits are prompting a flood of proposals to cut spending, raise revenue, and reduce federal tax expenditures. Many affordable housing advocates, like me, believe that the greatest current risk to preserving the low-income housing tax credit program is corporate tax reform. This is not because of the philosophical foundation of corporate tax reform, but because of misinformation about the low-income housing tax credit in particular and federal tax expenditures in general. The low-income housing tax credit is consistently lumped in with all federal tax expenditures claimed by corporations, as if all federal tax expenditures are alike. One key distinction is nearly always missed, and in the most recent blog posting that I wrote, I address this distinction. As I describe in my blog, three members of Ernst & Young's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, commonly referred to as Quest, recently wrote an article for B&A's Daily Tax Report. It's entitled, Lowering Business Tax Rates by Repealing Tax Expenditures, an Industry Analysis. In that article, the Quest Group says, and I quote, eliminating the low-income housing tax credit would fall most heavily on the finance and insurance industries. Now, affordable housing advocates throughout the country know that such a statement is patently false. There is no question that the burden of eliminating the low-income housing tax credit would fall most heavily on low-income families seeking affordable rental housing. So what did Quest miss? They missed the philosophical difference between tax expenditures that create direct social impacts and those that create at most spillover social impacts. To read more about this distinction, I encourage you to go to novogradic.wordpress.com. That's where my blog is. Once again, novogradic.wordpress.com. In my blog, I discuss how tax expenditures can be classified as direct social impact tax expenditures or spillover social impact tax expenditures, and how that distinction should be factored into discussions about corporate tax reform. I also invite you to post your comments on my blog or send your thoughts or reactions to me directly at michael.novogratic at novaco.com. I would like to hear from you. Also, as a follow-up to last week's podcast, I did want to address a question that, did, that we did receive. The question related to the average income proposal that was included in President Obama's budget. The average income proposal would allow some tenants in a property to be over income above, say, 60% to the extent that another tenant had an equal amount below 60%. So that the average income of a property was at the elected 60% level. The question that we received 
was when such a provision would be effective. And then specifically, they were wondering if it could be effective for existing properties. Well, the answer is it would not be effective for existing properties as proposed by the president. Specifically, the president's average income proposal would be effective for elections, set-aside elections, that are made after the date of enactment. Now, that's not to say that should this provision become law, it wouldn't be modified, that is, the effective date wouldn't be modified. But I'd also note that at the state level, there's additional conditions. So not only would the federal government need to allow the provision to be effective for existing properties, but at the state level, there would have to be similar agreement. So hopefully that, that answers the question for our listener. If you have other questions about the various proposals that we've discussed in this podcast, please don't hesitate to send us an email to cpas at novaco.com or to me, michael.novagradic at novaco.com. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, on February 10th, the New Jersey Division of Taxation issued a technical advisory memorandum regarding the taxability of grants under Section 1603 of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. In that guidance, the Regulatory Services Branch of New Jersey confirms that Section 1603 federal grant funds are not, that's right, they're not taxable in New Jersey. As listeners know, Taxpayers who own property that's eligible for tax credits under Internal Revenue Code Sections 45 and 48 may elect to forego claiming tax credits and instead apply to the Treasury Department for a Section 1603 Renewable Energy Cash Grant. Taxpayers that receive Section 1603 cash grants exclude these payments from federal gross income. As such, the Section 1603 payments are reported, in essence, as tax-exempt income on federal income tax returns. This exclusion helps to ensure that Section 1603 cash grants are, in many ways, similar in value to Section 48 investment tax credits for federal income tax purposes. However, for state income tax purposes, it's not always clear whether or not that Section 1603 cash grant payments are excluded from gross income. State laws and regulations can vary considerably. For example, Some state and local jurisdictions, such as the District of Columbia, automatically conform to the Internal Revenue Code. Others, such as Ohio, do not. In fact, most states do not conform automatically. And although many states eventually conform to the tax code, the time it takes them to do so varies, and this does create uncertainty when you're structuring certain transactions. Ultimately, the risk is that a particular state does not conform and that the cash grant would be income for state income tax purposes. That's why the guidance released last month in New Jersey is so helpful, as it does provide clarity and reassurance for renewable energy practitioners that are structuring transactions in the state of New Jersey. If you want to learn more on how Section 1603 grant payments are subject to taxation in the various states, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Tony Graponi, at 617-330-1920. He's at extension 114. That's Tony Grapponi, 617-330-1920, extension 114. In closing, I'd like to encourage you to join us in San Francisco on April 28th and 29th for our Financing Renewable Energy Conference. For more information, you can check us out on the web at www.novaco.com events. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week 
for another Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.